We'll pick up in verse 6 tonight here in Romans chapter 12 and just a handful of verses because Paul goes through a very long list of spiritual gifts. And, and as he does so, I want to begin with a question. Uh, is there anyone in here that believes God has not gifted them? I want to square away that part of your theology. I want to tell you that the Bible clearly says that every single believer will have at least one spiritual gift. And because that's true, then the next question, which must subsequently follow that one, is, are you using that gift? Are you using your gifts for the glory of the Lord? And that's really the focus uh, of this week's study and also next week's because there are so many things listed here uh, we couldn't possibly cover them all in one study. But in the light of that diversity and yet great unity that we saw back in verses 4 and 5, Paul is now going to say, having then gifts in verse 8. He's stating it as a fact He's not asking a question. He's saying, we do have gifts. The church has gifts. All manner of things stored up. Things that you and I can use for the glory of the, of the Lord or not use for the glory of the Lord. And therein is the tragedy. I read a number of years ago the story of a, of a man in Saskatchewan, Canada. He's a farmer specifically a wheat farmer, lived on a little over a 1,000 acres, farmed winter wheat. So most of the time, brown fields, farm building, you can imagine the scene. But there on that farm, he had not one but two barns. In the second barn was a collection of over 50 violins, many of them extremely rare, they had been collected by his family over a period of a little over 100 years. And in there, not one, but two Stradivarius violins. And if you're familiar with violins, that's the cream of the crop. That's the top of the list. That's the one that if you are a virtuoso in violin, that's the violin that you want. He had two of them. Here's the crazy thing. Not a single person in his family played violin. Not one. Not he, not his wife, none of his kids. Not the aunts, uncles, or cousins. And so that collection of violins, including two of the best violins in the entire world, will never get played. They're going to sit in that barn. They will collect dust and likely rot right where they're at. You see, gifts that are stored in a closet benefit no one. I was in business with my mom and her husband for a long time, more than 10 years. And he had a habit of collecting tools when he went home to be with the Lord, we were, my brother and I were cleaning out a, a shed. And in that shed were thousands of dollars of tools rusted in their boxes. Gifts stored in sheds, locked in closets, put somewhere, and saved for another time. Tools that are in God's toolbox, things that God wants to use to accomplish his plans and purposes cannot be used if the tool says to the Lord, I want to stay in my nice little box. Are you a tool in a box? Are you a violin in an extra barn in Saskatchewan? Or are you a tool that very proudly is extremely worn on the handle? 
Are you a violin that is so worn that the top of the violin barely has any varnish left on it? I pray you're the latter. Let's use those gifts. Infinitely more tragic than a violin in a, in a barn or a rusted tool in a box is the gifts that God has given you that are just sitting there collecting dust. Here in this chapter, and, and it parallels 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we see the spiritual gifts that are listed, and they, they, fa- they fall into three basic categories. They all begin with S, the first of which is the sign gifts, the second of which is the speaking gifts, and the third of which is the serving gifts. Spiritual gifts, in a general sense, all fall into those three categories. They're either sign gifts, speaking gifts, or serving gifts. And so before we dig into what the apostle is going to to talk about next, uh, we'll take a look at what the sign gifts are and and how they're used. So here we go, verse 8, or verse 6 first, and then down through verse 8. Having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, in God's grace, he's given you gifts, me gifts, us gifts. Let us use them. Notice what he says. That I've given you, in essence, those gifts for a purpose. They're meant to be used, not stored up, not for another day, not for a rainy day, but used for his glory. And he goes on to begin to define some of these gifts. And again, there's a very long list here, and we'll cover a good chunk of them tonight. If prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts, in exhortation, and it seems redundant, but he's reminding us that each of these gifts is supposed to be used within its own context. In other words, what God has done in your life, in other words, a teacher needs to teach. Someone who's been gifted with that gift is supposed to be using that specific gift. It's also saying something that's, that's really the opposite of that. If you don't have that gift, then God hasn't given you that gift. It's a miserable thing to try and be something that you haven't been gifted in by the Lord. And having spent an awful lot of time at the Bible college, I can tell you a lot of people that think they're pastors that aren't pastors. There are a lot of people that think they're teachers that aren't teachers. There are people who think they have specific gifts simply because they've gone to a certain amount of classes and they think that that automatically qualifies them. These are spiritual gifts. They are gifts that are given by God. There are not just learned behaviors here. Though there are some of these gifts that require that you study to show yourself an approved workman that can rightly divide the word of truth, as with the gift of teaching, they are spiritual gifts given to you by God, and they're not things that you can simply learn. So God wants them to be used for the purpose for which he's given them. He who exhorts an exhortation, he who gives... With liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so, a number of gifts, and we'll look at each of those individually. But one of the things that we always end up discussing when we reach this topic of spiritual gifts first, I want to deal with the sign gifts. The sign gifts are principally those uh, that were very much active during the first century of the church, during the time of the apostles, during the beginning of the church age. And I want to give you a little bit of a background in Calvary Chapel. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Baptists think that we are charismatic, and those who are charismatic think we're Baptists as Calvary Chapel. We're somewhere in the middle. We are not cessationists. A cessationist believes that these gifts completely stopped and are not used at all, ever, anywhere in the world because they ended at the time of the apostles. That is not where we stand as Calvary Chapel. As Calvary Chapel, we believe that the gifts are still active, all of them. But we do believe that in a limited sense, these sign gifts were for a very specific purpose and were for the most part active during the first century, primarily for a singular reason. 
they validated the message of the apostles. In other words, the apostles were unknown. They were fishermen. They're wandering around. So the natural question would be, how do we know you're a real prophet? How do we know you're a real apostle? How do we know that you're a disciple? How do we know that the word of the Lord is speaking through you? And so God gave them very specific special abilities for a period of time that operated in, uh, in a huge way during very specifically the formation of the early church. And so the sign gifts themselves specifically were for that during the New Testament time and those gifts, in essence, authenticated the teaching of the apostles. It also is a measure of an apostle. In other words, when an apostle would teach, uh, very often someone would ask him a question, and, and if they wondered whether that message were true or not, very often there would be teaching, and then a, uh, some type of a sign would be given so that that could be validated. And if you think about those things, the book of Hebrews actually gives us a little bit of insight into it. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. And it says, after, and it's really speaking of the gospel in that reference there in verse 3 of Hebrews 2, was spoken first through the Lord. In other words, after the gospel, it, the word of the Lord, was spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed by those of us who heard it. God bearing witness with them, that would be the apostles, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So there was a period of time when the apostles were used and they did things that were very common then that we do not see in, in as great a method and, and as great a way today. Now, having said that, I can tell you because I've traveled around the world, I, I've been all over the place in all kinds of different places, the Lord still uses these very gifts, but primarily in places where the word of the Lord has not been validated and verified. You travel to India where it's completely pagan in spots, sign gifts sometimes are a little more prevalent. Miracles, literally you travel to places to where the word of the Lord has not been validated, you'll see those types of things. In our day and time, because we have the completed word of God, they are not so prevalent. But there have been times, and I have witnessed those things, I have seen a demon-possessed woman. And I mean in every way, shape, or form you could possibly imagine, demon-possessed. And a demon cast out of her. So it does happen. But it's fairly rare. During Jesus' earthly ministry with the apostles, it says there in Mark 16 that they went out and preached everywhere. And while the Lord worked in them, in verse 20 of Mark 16, and confirmed their word by signs that followed. And so as Paul writes these things, he, he kind of gives us a picture that they were necessary, they were needful. Those things that we call the sign gifts were very useful during the formation of the church. But it's also very interesting when you get to the New Testament authors and to God codifying what he wants us to know about these gifts. Because there are chiefly four passages of Scripture that mention the gifts in general. And there is only one of those four that mentions the sign gifts, and it's found here. You, you, the only place that those are, are mentioned. None of the sign gifts are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They're not mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. They're not mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 4. And in fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far, speaking specifically about the gift of tongues or speaking in an ecstatic language, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, he goes so far as to say this. He says, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you, yet in church I would rather speak five words with my own understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he downplays the use of tongues in a public setting as an apostle. And so he's basically saying to the church, look, I'm not really interested in that. What I am interested in is that you continue to preach the word of God. Does God still heal? Of course he does. Does God still do miracles? Of course he does. 
Do people speak in different languages and people interpret it? Of course he does. Yes, he does those things. But it is significant that when you look at the gifts, so very often in our day and time, and you can validate this very easily for yourself, with very specific reference to the sign gifts, what we would call miracles, speaking in tongues, all of those things, for the most part, they end up getting abused. They become a test for whether you're saved or not. And very often, they exalt the gift instead of the one who gave it. And so, those sign gifts, I believe, have a very specific purpose in our world occasionally today. I do not believe that they are intended to be practiced in a public setting, specifically the gift of tongues, and very specifically, without an interpreter. So when someone comes to me and says, well, you know, I don't know why you don't let us speak in tongues in church, because the Bible clearly says, do not speak in a public manner in tongues unless there is someone to interpret. Now, I'll give you a little bit of heads up here. I was with Pastor Chuck for 23 years. I not once ever heard him either speak in or pray in tongues. Never. Pastor Steve, I not once ever heard him in 20 years pray in or speak in tongues. So when you come to me and you ask, I want to speak in tongues in the church, I'm going to tell you, probably not a great idea. Unless you got somebody that you're really confident can interpret that because what's supposed to happen if it's improperly interpreted is you're supposed to be called a false prophet and we're supposed to cast you out. So I don't think you want us to do that. So these gifts, when Paul speaks about specifically tongues, the reason he does that, he goes on further to say, he says, those words don't edify someone who does not know the Lord. It might actually scare them. So in a public sense, the reason that we believe that if you have a private prayer language and that's between you and God in your prayer closet and you're speaking and God's speaking to you and the Holy Spirit's interpreting it for you between you and God, praise the Lord. But in a public setting, we believe that those things are best left out of the mix in a church setting. In all of these things, God's really speaking to us about the gifts that build up the body. If God gives me a gift, I am to be other-centered. In other words, any gift that God gives me, if it just builds up me, though that could be nice because maybe God's trying to take care of me, the whole purpose for these gifts, and we're going to see that with the rest of them, is other people. That's the beauty of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that for the most part, uh, with the exception of the sign gifts, those sign gifts were a validation, but they actually, at times, you'd be hard-pressed to say that they built up someone else. They just validated what that person said. But the gift of exhortation, that can build you up. The gift of teaching, that can build you up. The gift of healing, that can build you up. And so... I believe that the Lord wants us to focus in on the remainder of these gifts, which are all in the category of speaking and serving. And so those gifts are mentioned in all four passages that mention the gifts. So you only have them in one as far as the, 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 the sign gifts, and all of the rest of them are mentioned in all four passages that mention the spiritual gifts. So let's look at the first one, prophecy. Notice what it says. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. And people always go, okay, well, I'm a prophet. I, we had a guy at Calvary Vista. I've met several of them. Self-proclaimed prophets, they come complete with a robe, uh, usually long hair, uh, and they walk into the church, I have a word for you. Now, while that, why that, while that was a function during the, especially the Old Testament times, it was also a function in other words, revelatory, speaking from heaven to a person, to other people. That was a function of the prophets. That is not the only isolated use of the gift of prophecy. And let's look at this particular gift. Because the gift of prophecy is the person speaking forth what God has spoken to them to someone else. 
Anybody see where this is going? There's a sure way that every single person in this room can actually prophesy. Did you know that? There it is. You take out your Bible. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I just prophesied over every last person in here. Because I just spoke forth to you that which God has spoken to me. He's spoken by his word. And so in that sense, the New Testament era, the age of grace in which we live in, one of the ways that people still prophesy is by speaking forth the word of God. In other words, taking what God has clearly said and speaking it to other people. Though there was a revelatory aspect. In other words, God would speak something specific to a prophet and say, this is the burden of the Lord against Amnon. Or this is the burden of the Lord against Jerusalem. There were specific words given for specific periods of time, specific people. The Lord has given all of us the capacity to be able to look at this, which we know is the word of God. And speak it forth into people's lives. That is prophetic. Someone comes to me, well, what do you think about me sleeping with my girlfriend uh, before we're married? Let me prophesy in your life. Don't do it. I'm speaking prophetically into that person's life. If you do, let me tell you what will happen. Shame, pain, anguish. You're going to suffer. I'm speaking forth into their life the word of the Lord. So in that sense, to them, it is prophetic. It's not limited just to some specific revelation. It can be you taking the word of God and speaking it forth into someone's life. It's a public proclamation of divine truth. That's what the prophets actually did. You see, we have the word of God now in written form. They did not. And so the gift, again, of prophecy was used in a slightly different way, specifically during the Old Testament times and even during the New Testament times. There were some prophets uh, that wandered around the land speaking words of of prophecy. The the actual Greek word prophetia, which which has a general meaning, is just simply forth speaking. That's all it means. It means to speak forth that which the Lord has spoken. It's not just the prediction of supernatural events. It's not just divine revelation of specific things. And in its broadest context, it is the speaking forth of that which we know is the truth of the Lord. It can be preaching. It can be teaching. It can be proclaiming the word of God. 1 Corinthians, when it's spoken of there in chapter 14, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Where do we get edification, exhortation, and consolation? We get it from the word of God. So I can exhort my brother in the word of God. I can console my brother with the word of God. I can edify my brother with the word of God. It's one of the things that it declares about itself that it's for. The word of God is for the edification of the saints. So I'm speaking into that person's life using the gift of prophetically speaking forth the word Uh, so that that person can understand what God is saying to them. Peter's admonition in 1 Peter chapter 4 says it this way, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Can I tell you how to be 100% accurate about what God thinks about a subject? Just tell him what the Bible says. That's speaking forth the utterance of God. That's telling him what God has said. It's a perfect application in that sense. People get all hung up on, well, you know, I need a you know, divine revelation from the Lord, and I want to speak it forth. If we would just simply tell people what he's already said, we're going to be doing really good. If he gives you some tidbit, some extra piece, praise God. But he's already given you 2,456 pages, at least in my Bible, of what he's already said. There's plenty to say prophetically. So speak it forth. Tell people about it. Peter would go on to think, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. You want to prophetically speak into people's lives, first preach the gospel to them. 
That's prophetic. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Amen? That's prophetic. Somebody doesn't know the Lord. That is prophetic word to them. We're going to look at it on say, You must be born again. That's prophetic. To someone who does not know the Lord, that is a word of prophecy to them. You must be born again. That's new news to an awful lot of people. Speak some new news to them. You can be used of the Lord to speak truth into somebody's life who has no idea of the truth. Interestingly enough, and me show you this in action, even in the Old Testament, most of you are familiar with the story of Moses. In Exodus chapter 4, there's an interesting thing. Uh, there's, there's a little exchange here. Uh, they're in Egypt. They're, they're about to be delivered out. And Moses gives the excuse he doesn't want to go to Pharaoh. And he says there in verse 10 of chapter 4, Please, Lord, I, I've never been eloquent, neither recently or in times past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And, and God gets a little upset with Moses. You remember what he said? He says this, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? And I know that he speaks fluently. You were to speak to him, put the words in his mouth, and even I will be with you with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach him what you ought to do. He's basically saying, look, I'll speak to you, you speak to him, and he can speak it forth. That is the exact chain of every single pastor teacher on the planet Earth. God spoke it to the prophets. God spoke it to the apostles. They wrote it down, and I am the third person in the chain, exactly like Aaron. I'm just simply repeating what was already said. So God spoke it to Moses. Moses spoke it to Aaron, and Aaron spoke it to the people. And Aaron was called a prophet. Very simple to see. Just forth tell what God has already said to you. It's a beautiful picture of how our, our lives are used in that way. So the first gift to your prophecy. The second one, service. If in service, in his serving. If in service, in his serving. If in service, in his serving. In other words, there's a lot of ways you can serve. Amen? Again, the, the Greek word here, uh, diakonia, is, is we get our word deacon or deaconess from it, but it simply means one who serves. And the function of a person who serves means that they are not serving themselves, but serving others. And furthermore, it means that they're serving with a purpose, that purpose being the glorification of the Lord. And so it simply means find something to do for God. People always say, well, you know, I don't know if I have the gift of service. Can you vacuum? <laughs> it's that simple. It's not that hard. Well, I don't think I have the gift of service. I'm pretty sure you do. The question is, will you use it? Or are you going to put it in a barn in Saskatchewan? Can you pick up paper in the parking lot? Can you run copies? Can you... It, it isn't saying everyone has to teach a Bible study. It's saying use whatever you have for the glory of the Lord to help other people see Jesus. We have so many areas of service. Matter of fact, most of the things we do fall into the area of service some way, somehow. When you're giving, you're serving the Lord. That's actually one of the gifts that's listed here, and we'll get to it. You see, you can do almost anything in the name of the Lord. The whole function of this particular gift is for the Lord towards others. That's not that hard. All this technology, which will get turned on tomorrow, that's a gift of service. Gene and all these guys that work with him are serving the Lord by installing all of this technology. You should see the television control room that's just been built back there behind the glass. Serving the Lord. All this cabinetry, serving the Lord. These curtains were hung by a servant of the Lord. 
This carpet laid by a servant of the Lord, that paint by a servant of the Lord. By the way, these are all brothers and sisters in the Lord who have done these things that did it for the purpose of serving the Lord and blessing his people. Amen? So don't hide your gift in a barn in Saskatchewan. Just simply serve. Do something for Jesus. You know, when the ladies are baking cookies for our military, that's serving the Lord. Stuffing bulletins, serving the Lord. Running a meal to somebody, serving the Lord. It's a gift of service. He goes on and and talks about teaching. He who teaches in his teaching. And again, it sounds redundant, but he's, he's reminding us, look, you can have it and not use it. You need to use it. Take the gift of teaching. It's interesting uh, because the, the word here, didaskosun, is, is used for not only the person who teaches, but what is taught. In other words, there are people who actually compile the things that are taught. That is still teaching. I, I can tell you, because I, I have you know, people that I know that are authors, there are definitely authors who should never speak to people publicly. They shouldn't. They have no capacity to stand in front of people and communicate any thought or idea. It's the craziest thing. But they're amazing authors. They can write wonderful blogs. They they can put things on the Internet. They can do social media or television programs. That's actually still the gift of teaching. They're using what's up here to reach out there. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. It's most often associated with somebody who is a pastor who is also a teacher or someone who teaches publicly, as I am doing right now. That obviously is a use to that gift. But don't isolate it there because that's not the way it's used in the context here. Yes, it is the most prominent way in the church that it's used. And most every church has someone like me who teaches But there's a lot of teaching that goes on on our website with the blogs. There's teaching going on when we compile notes and they're transcribed and then they're given out to people. There's teaching going on when PowerPoint slides are created. There's teaching going on when we draft new believers pamphlets and books. There's teaching going on when we actually write books or or things that are passed out. There's all kinds of ways to exercise the gift of teaching. It's to transmit something that God has spoken forth into our lives and to give it to people in a way that it can be used. In a sense of a definition, the Bible actually describes the most common, what we call expository teaching, or exposing the truth of God's word, and it happens in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, and it says there, and so they read distinctively from the book of the law, they gave it sense, and helped them understand the meaning. That's it. That's what a teacher does. The teacher takes what God has said, and in this case, from the book of the law, and speaks it forth so that someone else can understand it and know what it means. People complicate it. Yeah, there's a lot of study that goes in, but but it's the the systematic teaching. It's the regular instruction. It's using those gifts in a a way that people are constantly getting an outflow of the truth of God's word. It's a way that we understand how God is speaking to us right now today. I very often get, you know, I'll get little emails and questions and stuff from people that you know, or either here during a service or maybe they watched online and they'll, they'll send stuff in, but the bottom line is, it could be me, it could be a teacher in a seminary, it could be someone at a college, it could be someone in Sunday school. Do you know that we have an awful lot of teachers who teach in Sunday school? A lot of them. There's probably some of you in here who actually have the gift of teaching. It's communicating the truths of God. Maybe you can write blogs. Maybe you're great with PowerPoint. You can put things together and make sense of sentences. That's teaching. You see, a a pastor really is a separate but complementary gift to that of teacher. A pastor actually is a shepherd. So some pastors are also teachers. 
and some teachers are also pastors. But I know people who are great pastors and not great teachers. And I know people who are teachers that are not great pastors. Some people have both. Many have both. Some only have the one gift. As an elder, you're actually required to teach. It's a requirement of being an elder in the church. Did you know that? First Timothy chapter 3, very clear. Hold fast to be able to teach the faithful word in accordance with all teaching. Be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, just as Titus says. Teaching is a necessary gift of someone who wants to be an elder in the church. Got to be able to teach. So teach. But let me tell you this. Before everybody gets all excited, I'm going to write a blog. It's also the only gift that comes with a warning. And it's there in James 3, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we, James including himself, shall receive a stricter judgment. It's also a gift that comes with a warning because what we're teaching is not just a class on biology. As wonderful as that might be. We're supposed to be teaching the truths of God's word. It's a very serious, serious gift. The fourth gift that's listed here is the gift of exhortation. Now, ever I, the, the word exhortation to most people is like instantaneously negative. The dude just exhorted me. You know, it kind of goes with an admonition. Oh, I hope I don't get an admonition. And while there can be a measure of seriousness, exhortation does not just mean you're going to get beat up with something from the Word of God. It actually comes from the, uh, the verb parakaleo, paraclete, to come alongside, to lay in order. It's actually two words, para and kaleo. It means advocate. It means comforter. It means helper. Jesus actually referred to himself in both uh, as the helper and, and sending another helper, the Holy Spirit, an advocate. It's one who advises. It's one who pleads. It's one who encourages. It's one who warns. It's one who strengthens. There's a whole lot to exercising the gift of exhortation. So when somebody says, oh, I don't want the gift of exhortation, you don't want to comfort people? That's the gift of exhortation. You don't want to help people with their, with their problems? Gift of exhortation. You don't want to strengthen people? That's the gift of exhortation. It's one of the uses of it. So sometimes these things get narrowed way down to like this one very specific aspect. And that's the reason I'm trying to broaden your understanding of these gifts. I think there's a lot of people in this room right now that have the gift of exhortation. You can take the word of God and rightly apply it in someone's life and help build them up. Part of exhortation is edification, lifting someone up, allowing them to grow, allowing them to become all that God's called them to be. It can be, as I've been accused of doing the last couple of weeks, a direct exhortation to the entire church. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You know, I actually had somebody question me on that. And in, in, in great love, I said, I don't understand what your question, what, it, what don't you understand about God saying something so specific as be holy because I'm holy? I was like, well, you were exhorting. Yes, I was exhorting. The Bible exhorts us occasionally. You need to get used to that because there's times when we need to be exhorted that way. Amen. Or maybe you don't. I do. I need to have a strong encouragement. I need the Lord to come right alongside of me and go, Jeff, you know what? This is my standard. And I'd like you to keep my standard, not yours. Yours is down here. Mine's up here. So keep this one. This is mine. This one down here, that's the one you made. That is a function of exhortation. And at times you do that. But not every message needs to be an exhortation. I just kind of exhorted you all about exhortation, didn't I? So there's an exhortation about exhortation. Like, be careful. Not everything needs to be an exhortation. It can be the type of exhortation that is just building somebody up, telling them the truth, helping them grow. That's part of that function. You see, all of these gifts are grace gifts. Hear what I just said very carefully. All these gifts are grace gifts. When you're exhorting, you need to exhort in grace. 
When you're teaching, you teach in grace. When you're serving, you serve in grace. When you're being merciful, you be merciful in grace. When you're giving, you give in grace. All these things are done in grace. Bathe them in grace, but leave them intact. Grace and truth are bookends, amen? You can't just be gracious and yank the truth out because then it's not truth anymore. But you also can't just be truth and not be gracious. So you have to have balance. Scripture always gives us balance. And these things that are hard for us to understand, the Scriptures want us to have balance. Everything is in grace, so be gracious. But sometimes gracious is, dude, you're going to go to hell. You understand what I just said? I was just gracious in saying, look, there are eternal consequences to your actions. You can't tell somebody, well, you know you don't need to be born again. You know, as long as you kind of think about God. That's a lie. That's not being gracious at all. That's telling them a lie and hoping they won't get mad at you because you told them the truth. You see, you've got to learn how to take grace and infuse it into these things. Say, Brother, sister. Jesus said you must be born again. You must. Not you should. Not I hope you do. You have to be or you will not see the kingdom of God. You see, that's not an option. So an exhortation is to tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Amen? There's nothing wrong with that. That's not being mean. That's actually being grace-filled. When the scriptures say something specific, we're supposed to be specific. The exhortation to truth. And so these three gifts that we just looked at, prophecy proclaims truth, teaching systematizes and explains truth, and exhortation calls believers to obey truth. Do you notice the key? Truth. Proclaiming truth, teaching truth, and then acting on truth. They're all linked together. We need to keep them linked together. Well, it's okay, you know, teach it, but, you know, just don't tell us we actually have to do it. You know, I've actually gotten emails like that. I know the Bible says that, but you don't have to say that from the pulpit. I've actually had people say that. Like, really? It's like, you, you kind of might want to read the danger of being a teacher there in James. I'd rather stand before God and have a clear conscience that I said what needed to be said than not say it. Giving. Verse 8 there, the second half. He who gives with liberality. I love this. You will often say, well, you know, I don't have a give. I don't have a gift. Can you give? And when the people say, well, I don't, I don't have any money. That's not the only way to give. Three T's, time, talent, treasure. It's important that we do give as in monetarily. That, that's part of it. You need to honor the Lord with your tithe. God's asked us, he said, test me in this. So you want to do that. But you can give of your time and your talent and your treasure. You can give of three different areas principally. Sometimes just giving time. Sitting down with somebody, that's a a gift of your time. That's giving time. It's valuable. If you don't believe that, tell your boss that you're only going to work 10 hours this week. It's your time that's valuable, right? Your time is valuable to the Lord. Your talents are valuable to the Lord. That's generally actually why you get a paycheck. You have a specific talent and you spend a certain amount of time using that talent and that's the reason you actually get the treasure. So your time and your talents are also valuable to the Lord. And he'd like for you to give those to him as well. So if you're giving, do it. Notice what it says, liberally. It's actually a Greek word that means generously. It means that you look at the needs of others and say, 
If I've got it, it's yours. You see, we're supposed to be using what we have for the betterment of other people. It means single-mindedness. It means open-handedness. It means that you have something that likely somebody else could use. It would bless them. So give. If you, if you know people who have teenagers, give of your time. Help mentor them. If you can do Sunday school, if you can spend time with little kids, give of your time. The Lord loves it when we give. He wants us to do that as a manner of living. That's what he's really saying. When you give liberally, that means you're not thinking about you all the time. You're thinking about others all the time. And so the natural outflow of that is you're always giving. I'll give you a little secret. You can't outgive God. It's not possible. The person who gives liberally is blessed liberally. That's what Paul says. If you, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you'll reap generously. It's a, it's a direct ask of us. Be generous. Read that passage there in Malachi 3. Test me in this. See if I will not bless you. You know, I can tell you, almost without exception, when people come and they've got deep financial problems. A matter of fact, I can tell you to this day, I have never had someone come and say, you know, I've really, I I don't know what went wrong. I've been faithful to the Lord and he hasn't taken care of our needs. I've never had a single person say that to me. But I have had an awful lot of people who say, well, you know, I kind of wasted my time and my talent and my treasure and now I'm in a difficult spot. Don't waste your time, talent, and treasure. If you want a secret to God taking care of you and your family, be faithful to give. Because here's the crazy thing. God's actually then obligated to take care of you because his word says so. See if I will not bless you is what Malachi 3 says. God actually asks you to test him. It's the only time in all of Scripture that he does it, by the way. It's an amazing thing that God does when we give with liberality, great liberality, sowing to the things that Lord, the Lord wants us to do, exactly as 2 Corinthians 9 tells us to do. In leadership, lead with diligence. Can I remind you that procrastination is not a spiritual gift? Laziness is not a spiritual gift. That being a sloth is not a spiritual gift. Some people think that they can give God their leftovers. Some people think that they'll be in leadership if they just kind of are sort of around every once in a while. No, the gift of leadership is given with diligence. And the word leadership that's translated here, prosteomai, actually means to be in front. God is not going to put you in front unless you're worthy of being in front. It's that simple. So he wants leaders to be worthy of leading. So so he's looking for gifts, that someone that can steer the ship, someone that will be faithful, someone that's, that's going to take the front and deserve to be there. Not because you're great, not because you've earned it, but because it is a lifestyle with you. You're worthy of being followed. Natural leaders get followed because they're natural leaders. You, you can always tell when somebody has leadership qualities, they will have people around, they're just following them. I don't even know why I'm following that man or that woman. I, 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 it's just like, they're just leading. It's a gift. If you have it, use it. If you can organize people. We have some amazing ladies in this church. 
They're incredible leaders. Stuff gets done. This, this whole conference that's going on this weekend, that's all being mapped out by the ladies' ministry. Incredible leadership. Directing, guiding, making sure the stuff's taken care of. Our, our pastoral staff here, great leadership. Being in the front, saying, look, follow me. This is where we're going. And I'll remind you that without exception in all of Scripture, whenever people decided to do that which was right in their own eyes without leadership, it did not go good. The book of Judges is a testimony to that very fact. So, well, look, we don't need a leader. We'll just all, we'll have a free-for-all. I'll be in charge. We'll turn everything into a committee. Oh, the church needs leadership. And a blessed church is a church that has leadership. So if God's given you that gift, seek to use it. Maybe you're, you're that person that can just simply get something done. Offer to do it. I think the guys that have come in here and helped with the stage project, this, this whole, imagine all of this got done and we never missed a single service. Not one. We had the great wall of plastic. <laughs> but we still had church. That didn't happen because, you know, well, you know, if we just pray, brother, it'll happen. No, people led. They put on their nail bags, they hopped up on the lifts, they got up on scaffolding and did what needed to be done, and other people followed them. Praise the Lord for godly leaders. Lead with diligence. And finally, the last one here, mercy. Ever thought about for a moment uh, that mercy is a spiritual gift? And yet it's listed here. And he who shows mercy, she who sows, shows mercy with cheerfulness. This final one, the seventh one in, in this particular cluster, this grouping. The person who shows mercy it carries the idea of actively demonstrating sympathy and then doing something about it. Do you understand what I just said? It's not recognizing a problem and feeling sorry for somebody. It's recognizing a problem and then doing something to alleviate the situation. Some people say, well, you know, I'm just really merciful. You're not merciful if you recognize the problem and then let the person suffer. That's not mercy. That's compassion. You can have compassion and do nothing about it. But mercy, by its very definition, instills in us a heart's desire to do something about that person's situation. We are being merciful to those in Houston. We are being merciful to those that are in Puerto Rico. We are being merciful as soon as we find out what we can do to those people in Northern California. We are being merciful when we act on compassion. When we say there's something we can do about that situation, let's do it. That's exercising the gift of mercy. And when you have that gift, you will find a way to express the use of it. You'll find a way to do something about that situation. And it's been so cool to, you know, as I've been, you know, kind of putting out some Instagram stuff and, you know, talking to people via email, eventually, when you're looking to do merciful things, you're going to find a way to get it done. It took us three weeks to figure out how to get something uh, really accomplished down in Houston, and then we got it done. It, it took us two weeks to figure out how to do something in, in Puerto Rico, but we got it done. We're going to find out a way to get something done in Northern California, and then we're going to get it done. That's being merciful. Mercy doesn't sleep when it sees something that needs to be done. Mercy says, look, I've got to do something about this. You know, there's an awful lot of people who, when it's all said and done, there's a lot more said than done. We want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We want to be people who are merciful. You, you see, uh, a person who is merciful exhibits that gift, can go and visit people in the hospital. Not just recognize they're sick people 
And, and while there is an exercising of the gift of mercy, even in praying, that's actually an action. It's a great one. It's the one you should start with. But you, you can go visit somebody in the hospital. You can go to the jails with Pastor Josh. That's a gift of mercy. That's actually taking what you have and going ministering to the homeless. That's the gift of mercy. You can go visit the poor and do something about their poverty. That's the gift of mercy. You can find somebody who's handicapped and offer to bring them to church. That's the gift of mercy. You can find someone who's suffering and alleviate some of that suffering. That's the gift of mercy. You can take someone who's sorrowing deeply and you can be there to cry with them. That's actually the gift of mercy. That's doing something about it. Oh, that the gift of mercy would be in action in our church. It is. But this is one of the gifts that I believe most of us probably have. The question is, is it in a barn in Saskatchewan? Is it in a tool shed next to the house? Or are you going to use it for God's glory? Now, having said all that, don't be bummed. Maybe you're not being used in any of these ways yet. There's some more gifts, by the way, so we're not done. But when you think about these gifts, how many of us are actually looking for places that we can use our gifts? Or we're kind of like the violins in the barn. We know we have them. But we don't want to be obligated. Well, I pray that you don't feel like you're obligated to the Lord. I pray you feel like it'd be an honor to use the gifts that God's given you for the Lord. Because it is. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. You don't want to be like one of Job's friends, amen? You don't want to be like Job's friends. They could spot the problem. But all they did was point out the problem and push him deeper into despair. There's a lot of people that think that's a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift of fault finding. That's not a spiritual gift. There's no such thing as a spiritual gift of a critical spirit or gossip, backbiting, slander. Those aren't spiritual gifts. Notice all of these things had a spiritual impact and a positive one on other people. Notice that every last one of them actually cost the person who has them something. You see, it's going to cost you to be used by the Lord. It's going to cost you. It costs Jesus everything to pay for your life. He's just simply asking, why don't you take what I've done in your life and use some of it for my glory? That's all it is. And so I pray that we would minister cheerfully. Amen? Gloriously, beautifully. And whatever gift you have, use it for his glory. Use it frequently. Use it often. And for heaven's sake. And I mean it for heaven's sake. Don't leave it in a barn someplace. Don't put it in a shed. Don't think that you can hermetically seal it and save it for later. He gave it to you so that you could use it right now for him. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray together. Alex is going to close us out in, in another song. Uh, maybe you've been hanging on to those gifts. I just want to encourage you, man, use them. Find a way to, to bless the Lord with what God's done in your life. There's nothing greater. You know, you never know when that one little thing that you can do right now turns into something else that's going to be the, the, the step necessary. Maybe you're going to be the next pastor of this church, but God's waiting for you to use what you already have. Because he won't give you more until you use what you got.
So ask him to help you use what you've got for his glory. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for these amazing saints. And and Lord, so many of them gathered here tonight uh, have preciously and wonderfully used the gifts that you've given them for your glory here in this, this great church. And we pray that you would just raise up more giftedness in our midst. And we pray that this church would be so filled with serving saints that we'd be looking for new ways to use all those gifts. God, grow us, expand us, stretch us out, plant new churches, send us around the world. Lord, give us great resources to do great things. Lord, we don't want to store them up in the barns. We don't want to wrap them up in plastic in a shed. We want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And so, Lord, uh, if you give us gifts, we'll use them for your glory. We make that promise to you. We bless you. We praise you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, amen. Amen. Amen.